Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live, a show where we go out in search of our culture warriors who are standing against the ever-increasing madness of this woke world. Today we have a very special guest who appears to have tried out all the various roles available in our political system, from senator to MP to minister and finally the coveted role of Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now a leading political commentator, I speak of course of the Honourable Bronwyn Bishop. Bronwyn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You have done... Well, you have done and seen it all when it comes to Australian politics. During your time, particularly as Speaker, you fought to uphold the standards of our once great political system. And I have to begin by asking, is the quality of politics in this country declining? Because we've seen some dreadful displays of personal behaviour in the recent uh, politics. I think it's always been pretty much thus. There's always been rambunctious behaviour in the chamber. That's the nature of um, of our system. It is opposition, uh, putting the government to account, asking all the difficult questions, trying to show which ministers are up to it and which ones aren't. And then you've got um, the government who is busy trying to display its competence and that's the purpose of Dorothy Dixes and trying to show that they're in charge. So it is adversarial and it's no accident that the table between the two uh, sides of parliament is the width of two sabres. So it is uh, no swords, no fisticuffs, just words. It's basically a safety barrier is what you're saying. But let's start at the beginning. You're a North Shore girl like me, but instead of politics, you seem to have a love of the arts and singing and acting. Are you still drawn to these pursuits? Oh, absolutely. And I have the, the great pleasure of being chairman of Opera Foundation for Young Australians which uh, we've just announced six awards uh, for young Australians who are uh, professional and for four of those awards ready to go. And it is quite significant, I think, that what we do is open doors for young Australians. We don't say here's a pot of money, uh, go and find yourself some uh, overseas study. We are able to put uh, a, a an Australian young singer on the stage of Deutsche Oper in Berlin, of the Vienna State Opera in Vienna, and now this year, La Scala. Uh, so that's a pretty good uh, track record, I think. And we also send the ones that are just ready to go professional to uh, Opera Holland Park in London. So it's a pretty exciting uh, event that we're doing. Do you ever find it a bit disappointing that the left have taken such control of the arts? Because I know of a lot of conservatives or even just non-political people who find themselves being pushed out of the arts industry, even though they might love drawing and painting or they might want to get into theatre, but they just seem to... It's quite adversarial now if you're trying to grow up in the arts community. Well, the arts community is always a bit like that. Um, uh, my mother was an opera singer, so um, I guess I'm familiar with the world, but was brought up with the world of the arts. And and I, I have to mention the other thing that I'm very much involved in is Friends of the Sydney International Piano Competition. And that competition kicks off on the 5th of July at the Conservatorium until we move to the Opera House with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra for the six finalists, um, which will be very exciting indeed. And these are 32 young people from around the world who've been uh, judged by our uh, adjudicators to be the best 32 on offer. So this is very exciting too. 
But there is this strange thing um, with the Australia Council where they will not in any way support um, arts endeavours where competition is involved because they say it's bad for the psyche of the artist and yet they have to compete against each other every day of their lives to get uh, a performance engagement and basically to put a bottom on the seat. So this, these both the organisations I've talked to you about receive no government funding at all. Well, it was early on that you caught the political bug, Bronwyn. You became involved with the Young Liberals and from there you made your way into the party, rising through the branch ranks very quickly. What was it about politics that stole you away from the arts and seduced you into this new game? Well, studying history, um, because history taught me that there were um, individuals could make a big difference in what happened. And but you could have a strong, powerful leader that was a strong, powerful leader for evil or a strong, powerful leader that was for good. And I saw that uh, Hitler was a strong, powerful leader for evil. Churchill was a strong, powerful leader for good. And I decided I wanted to have a say in what happened to my country. So I decided um, when I was still at school that that's what I wanted to do. And then I decided to do law because I thought if I was going to make the laws of the land. It, or have a say in it, it might be a good idea to understand them. So that's what I did too. And I'm, I still have a current practising certificate as a solicitor. Well, I can't help but notice that we seem to be not so much uh, the baby boomer generation, but Gen Z and Gen Y and certainly the next generation coming up. There seems to be this idea of let the government make decisions for them. They enjoy the idea of not having the responsibility of making choices. Is that a worrying trend that you're seeing coming up where there's more onus on politicians to make all the decisions and less pushback from the public? Well, that, that's the, the old, the old um, debate between collectivism and individualism. And what I believe in and believe in passionately is free enterprise and individualism. And when you go the collective route, which is where the government is making all the decisions, and they make it for the collective, the individual can be sacrificed to the collective. But with individualism, you have the, uh, the need for individuals uh, to, in fact, uh, ensure that what they're doing is to ensure that every individual gets the opportunity to reach their maximum potential. And that means everybody. It means people with disabilities. It means people with disadvantage. Uh, because that way you have a cohesive society where anybody can shine and the opportunity is there for you to succeed. The collective will always suppress the individual and thereby suppress the community in which we live. So yes, it worries me very much. That's what socialism is, collectivism. You know, a lot of kids running around today love socialism. They make no joke about it, although they would never live under socialism, but they do idolise it. But I came across a really curious detail when uh, looking through this interview, and it said that you were on a TV program called Divorce Court in the 1960s. Bronwyn, what was that like being on TV in the 60s? Well, it was black and white for starters, but it was quite amusing. Uh, I, uh, my next door neighbour was acting for a production company that was going to make this series. And uh, I um, uh, was asked by him, would I make the pilot? 
And in those days, there was no advertising allowed for lawyers at all. At that stage, I was still an article clerk. Uh, so I had to get an undertaking that my name could not be mentioned. But anyway, I made the pilot. And then I was asked, um, would I like to be um, on the show? So I said, well, yes, I would. But still, you couldn't mention who I was, uh, my name. Uh, and so I did. I made uh, the, the first series. And uh, then I um, pointed out to the producers that uh, I was getting a bit pregnant to be Miss Baker anymore. So I, I then had uh, Angela, um, and then uh, I came back after that and made some more. So, uh, but it showed for about five years. I think Angela was old enough to see it in black and white before it finally disappeared from the screen. That's rather excellent. Oh, and look, you know, when 1987 rolled around, you were elected as Senator of New South Wales, uh, where you were quickly made a name for yourself in fierce, and I hear rather scary debates. What was, was that the lawyer in you coming out where you loved this dramatic uh, combat of ideas, or is it the theatrics that you enjoyed? No, it's... It, um I'm a pretty good cross-examiner. I, I guess that's the bottom line. And I, it, it is in estimates that perhaps um, I like to think I made a, a big contribution because when I was told that I had to join an estimates committee, I said, well, what is that? And they said, oh, will you take a look at um, uh, the budget right across uh, all portfolios and ask questions? I said, oh, okay. So I went along to the first one. And uh, I saw people with lists of questions they were going to ask and um, public servants who were going to answer them and the minister was on duty. And um, at the end of all that, nobody really seemed to pay much attention to what the answers to the questions were. They just wanted to ask their questions. So out came a report that said, we came, we sat, we went. And I thought, well, this is a bit pointless. This could be much more um incisive and so I went to the, the clerk of, of the Senate and asked what I could do and he said well I said can I write my own report he said well yes you can and I said can we go into these matters in depth and he said well yes you can I said well thank you very much so we went off and did a lot of work and and came back and of course what we did do was uh, a lot of cross-examination and find a lot of things which were wrong and uh, needed to be rectified. And I guess there were two that were pretty important. And in addition to being on those estimates committees, I was also on the public accounts committee. So I could kind of cross-reference things. And I, I found perhaps two of the most significant ones were the Midford Paramount case, which originally came up in estimates when I discovered a report where an Australian um, manufacturing uh, warehouse had been raided by customs and subsequently people were prosecuted. Uh, this was a, a firm that was based in Wollongong um, where basically pyjamas and shirts and things were made. But basically uh, the firm was destroyed and I couldn't get to the bottom of what was happening. So I, I pursued that matter across two parliaments and in the end, we found that no laws had been broken because there was a, an agreement made between the Fraser government and uh, the Malaysian government, which meant that 
the the things that they were doing, which customs said were illegal, weren't illegal, and in the end they were paid twenty million dollars compensation. Wow. The second one, of course, of the tax office. Um, where in the end the, the tax commissioner had to resign. So they were, that, that can show you the power of, of those committees if they're used properly and if you do your homework and you're really looking at the issues in depth. Yes, well, I think it's your attention to detail that scares people more than the volume of which you argue with them. But by the 90s, you were positively famous. You shifted to being an MP and there were opinion polls that had you trending above Paul Keating as preferred prime minister. You were what they call a true celebrity politician. Now, I came across a quote from a 13-year-old Bronwyn who wanted to be the first female prime minister. Did you ever look at the role of prime minister more seriously as your career went on? Well, yes, it was very serious um, in the period uh, through the early 90s where the opinion polls did show that um, I was the preferred person over the sitting Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition to be Prime Minister. And I had an enormous amount of support. Um, and that's part of the reason I guess I transferred from the Senate to the House um, although John Gordon, of course, was Prime Minister while he was in the Senate, but he then transferred to the House. But uh, it, it, was a, it was an exciting time where people were listening to new ideas, they wanted new ideas, and I talked a lot about free enterprise, I talked a lot about the sort of changes I wanted to see, and to be blunt, it came pretty close to me becoming Prime Minister, in fact, I think um, I, I had a couple of front pages on the one on the bulletin, one on the the uh, um, colour magazine of the Australian, saying that uh, I would uh, possibly be the first woman prime minister. And also, it was interesting when I made that program about women uh, in politics for the ABC that went to air. I think it was last year. Um, they showed me. A focus group which I had never seen before and the focus group uh, showed that they all expected that I would be the Prime Minister and I was just amazed at that um, that I'd never seen it before or known it was there so it was a it was a very exciting time but I went on uh, uh, to become the member for McKellar and was there for 22 years um, and in various uh, roles as minister, as committee chair, as speaker. And I can just say it was a great honour to serve and to be part of, be able to uh, use the voice that I had wanted to have to inject that my thoughts and my ideas and my, my wishes to see the best for Australia, a nation of which I'm hugely proud. I think we are the best country in the world without any doubt at all. And uh, so, and then to go on and still be able to make commentary, I think I've been very privileged in that regard. Well, it's a great shame you didn't get to be Prime Minister, not because you would have been the first female Prime Minister, but because of your skill at leading the country. I think we missed out on that one. But you did get to have your portrait hung because, of course, you were Speaker of the House. What was that like? Was it kind of cool to have your portrait? Well, uh, it's, it's part of the tradition of the Parliament. Um, the, the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate and Prime Ministers and Governors-General are the people who have their portraits 
hung or painted and hung. And it's an interesting process to go through. Um, first of all, it has to be painted in a, a much smaller picture and put to a committee to see whether or not the committee of the of parliamentarians agree to its uh, being accepted and then it is painted and then ultimately hung. So, yes, it was um, uh, an engaging process. Um, and I, 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 I just felt, again, the sense of privilege of being able to hold that office. And some of the things I did with it um, by setting up a, a system whereby we took the parliament to schools We'd take a mace, we'd take a dispatch box, we'd take some gowns and um, we would go into the school having uh, decided which school we'd go with and they had picked a topic and that would become the subject of a bill and then we'd take it through the processes and they would debate it. So uh, that was a terrific thing to start and I'm very pleased to say that the current speaker is continuing that, that program, which I think is very important. And uh, also there's a, a big international role uh, where you represent the country at uh, places like the uh, International Parliamentary Union uh, and uh, other places where you're invited to go as speaker. Well, you're probably partly to blame for me being in politics because it was watching you as speaker that I thought, oh, yeah, this is something that should I should get involved with because it looks like it's interesting. You became a speaker in 2013, and I have to say that many people before you occupied this role, and their, their manner was incurably dull. You didn't really hear about it in the press in the, in the evening. A lot, a lot of people were paying attention, and I think your political celebrity status kind of helped to capture the public interest in politics, and that is a good thing. Now, if anything, your greatest gift was the way you schooled the political class and their poor behaviour, and this culminated in your use of Order 94A, and we have a quick clip of that to play now for our audience. Member seven, for Greenway is warned. For Melbourne, and I've said it any number of times the in Victoria. The member for Greenway will leave under 94A. <laughs> the members for Batman, Carrio will leave under 94A. Yeah, yeah. There'll be silence. The member for Hotham will leave under 94A. The member will resume his seat and leave under 94A. <laughs> the Prime Minister has the call. Is the Leader of the Manager of Opposition Business uh, anxious to join the Member for Hunter? No, I'm not. Uh, but if I've got the call, I'll take a point of order. Indeed. How is the Member for Hunter meant to resume his seat and leave the room? He can do it sequentially. It's quite clever. The Member will resume. Can't see who's yelling for your back. Was that the Member for Melbourne Ports? Well, in that case, you may leave under 94A. The member for Shorten will leave under 94A. The member will resume the seat. Indeed, having sat down, she too will leave under 94A sequentially. I... The member for Morton will leave under 94A. Uh, at risk of adding to the total, I should note that 18 people in one question time is an all-time record since Federation. Now, that's my favourite political clip of all time and a reason why you should have been Prime Minister. But the press complained that you mostly chucked out Labor politicians. But isn't that a reflection of their behaviour? There was a deliberate campaign uh, to disrupt. And the, the role of the Speaker is to make sure that members can be heard. 
Uh, and therefore, if there's disruption, uh, those causing the disruption have to leave. It was interesting. It was um, we, we, of course, had had all those um, uh, complaints about um, uh, the sign about uh, Julia Gillard being and, and the, the signs about a witch. And yet, in the speech that followed by election to the parliament, um, the now manager of government business, the leader of government business, made a speech in which he called me a witch, i.e. the witch out of um, Harry Potter. Uh, and there was a deliberate campaign to disrupt. And so uh, we can't have that sort of disruption. And so those who did disrupt had to leave. And on that day, it was particularly raucous. But it was quite amusing. There was one member who liked to get thrown out early on a Thursday because it meant he could get the early plane back to Adelaide. Oh, he must have been so sad about being thrown out on that occasion. But is that your one of your most memorable days as Speaker or were there other favourite moments that uh, you can recall that were particularly great? I suppose um, in, in terms of uh, ceremony in the chamber, um, during my period we did have visits from uh, the British Prime Minister, we had uh, President Abe, Prime Minister Abe from Japan, um, we had uh, President Xi from China, um, and I guess they were uh, really very significant visits uh, because of the nature of our relationship with those countries. And that was during the period just after a free trade agreement had been signed with China that President Xi came, and there was great expectation that um, a more liberal economic uh, China would lead to a more democratic, lead to more freedom, personal freedom in China. But of course, that was not to be the case, and we've all seen what has happened since. But it was uh, an exciting time uh, when those people uh, came to visit and, and address us in the Parliament. And I, I subsequently met with. Uh, Prime Minister Abe in Tokyo, and he wanted to talk particularly to me about the fact that in Japan uh, they needed women to come into the workforce doing uh, important proper work, not making tea, or perhaps that's an unfortunate way to express it, but to be uh, regarded as the equal of, of uh, men in the workforce and the fact that they were having this declining birth rate. And so we, we discussed these issues at, um, at great length. And he was very concerned about these issues. Well, I've shared the odd political TV panel with you. Actually, you were my first panel that I ever had with Gary Hargrave. And uh, are you enjoying this new era of political commentary that you've had since? Because it must be a lot of fun to sit down with politicians outside of parliament and get to have a chat on uh, live on TV. Well, yes, it is, and uh, I, I very much uh, enjoy the opportunity that I have as a contributor on uh, with Sky News. Uh, I, I'm working with people like um, Gary, of course, and then, of course, working with Paul Murray, who's a fantastic person and has a voice that is so important, uh, and the ideas that he express, expresses are so important. Uh, that I'm very proud and very um, grateful to be able to be part of that commentary team. 
Well, you've come full circle, really. We're turning to the screen where you get to terrify the inexperienced political class with your hefty folder full of secrets. And I've seen left-wing politicians recoil in terror when you glance in their direction. Is there a tell-all book on the horizon, Bronwyn? Uh, I have uh, said, yes, I will uh, write a book. Um, I, I recall <laughs> when I was going to be Prime Minister, I, I think I had a, a legion of people lining up to write one. I said, well, come back much later. Well, perhaps now's the time when I should be looking at putting the pen to paper. In the meantime, I, I do enjoy writing the, uh, the odd piece with The Spectator, which I think is a great magazine as well. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, as the online editor, we greatly appreciate the work that you write for us. Look, a fun question as we draw to the end here. Let's pretend it's open season. If you could have a televised debate with any sitting politician, who would you pick and what would you tear them to bits over? Well, I guess the obvious one you take on would be the Prime Minister, because it's interesting in that all the time, 20 years I sat in the chamber uh, with Mr Albanese, and nobody, not one person, nobody, ever suggested he was leadership material. And I think he's had a very easy run. We saw in the uh, in the lead-up to the election all the errors he made, but they were all glossed over by a, 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 a media that wanted to see him elected. Um, he's been out of the country most of the time. But when it comes to the real issues, the real issues of doing something about the cost of living and and making a real effort with regard to taming inflation and not simply blaming the Reserve Bank when their own policies are what is causing inflation. Uh, you cannot be pushing up wages to chase inflation and expect uh, workers to be better off. All it means is, is they get more money, but it buys less. Uh, and it's time that the um, both the Prime Minister and Mr Chalmers, the, the Treasurer, stop being commentators on how terrible it was and realise that they are in the position of power, they are the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, and it's time that they made the decisions that will really tackle the problems, including the question of electricity, and to be building poles and wires to uh, replicate and extend the already existing grid when we have options that continue to use the existing grid and force prices down by not paying subsidies to wind and solar producers and allowing the prices to find a settled uh, position which is much lower than it is now by either having um, the very sophisticated coal-fired power stations that other people in the world use which don't emit uh, the pollution that the older ones had done in the past, or we go to mod modular um, nuclear reactors where uh, we could have, say, three of them on the site of Liddell, which could use the old grid and produce much more efficient and cheaper power. Because although when they say a wind and solar are the cheapest form of power, they are not. Wind and sunshine are free, but the cost of converting that to energy and, and sending it along um, a grid of powers and poles into your home and my home and its businesses is hugely expensive and much more expensive than any other form of energy production. That's yes. where I'd be having the argument.
Yes, they very rarely give you the costings of renewable energy over 100 years because it doesn't look so good after you've ripped out a few times and replaced it. And I'd also much rather that our treasurers start uh, stop reimagining capitalism and maybe start practicing capitalism for a while. We might be in a better spot. But thank you so much for coming onto our show today, Bronwyn. It was an absolute pleasure. And also, thank you for your service to this country. It's been a wonderful career and you're still going. You're still holding our politicians to account and I absolutely love it. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to join you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all from us here today. I'm Alexandra Marshall. Catch you next week.